بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد وعلى ال سيدنا محمد وبارك وسلم I'm actually going to take your questions on the morning topic now because the afternoon topic is quite unrelated so I wouldn't be able to combine the questions on that so those of you who want to write your questions or the women write their questions and send them upstairs or the online women men so can email their questions on the morning topic Meanwhile, I'll just finish up very briefly that last thing I told you about. Uh, basically, why am I sharing all this stuff with you, the land reforms and this thing about interest and about zakat? It was for you people to understand that, you know, there are ulama who are working in these areas. There is a lot of scope more for deen of Islam to make an impact on society. And I'm not trying to do a complete denial or refutation of people who try to use politics or different movements or social movements. But I'm actually showing that knowledge is not entirely just academic. Even knowledge in our deen has the ability, if used and developed and applied, to actually impact society. All right? So the third idea, this is a project that I have delayed till 2018 due to my own business and due to my... Uh, lack of success in being able to do this in 2015. So in 2015 I had an idea, and I'll share with you the idea and what I tried to do and how I failed to do it. Uh, and that was that, uh, but I'd mentioned to you a couple of times about zakat. That zakat must have the ability to absolutely eliminate and eradicate poverty altogether. But obviously it would do that one step at a time. But it, it's like an eraser. So find I have to erase a whole board but I need to know that eraser works. That I can tell just by erasing a little bit, right? So, another problem is, unfortunately, a lot of people misuse zakat, misapply zakat. And some people, without revealing to you all the details, but some people have used something which is called hilai zakat, which is kind of a legal loophole to use zakat technically in a permissible way, but it won't really help eliminate poverty. It won't be used for the spirit of zakat, but it will be used according to the letter. And obviously, every letter has been revealed by Allah to create a spirit and to create a reality. So these are the reasons why zakat may not be having the effect Allah wanted it to have. So the idea I had was that I would get a group of people, muftis, economists, social workers, slash NGO, slash etc., public policy, myself, right? And we would form like this working group and do some research, both in Islamic law and Islamic history, and in public policy and economics and social work and how, because there is a lot of effort through the UN and many organizations in the world which are trying to combat poverty and try to see if we could come up with ideally the best but they may not be a single best, but a better or more ideal way to distribute zakat, which has more of an impact, which the impact of zakat, again, is to take poverty, the poor out of their poverty. That's the asl. To take the poor out of their poverty, not to give the poor medicines, not only to give the poor medicines and healthcare and clothing and shelter and elementary schools, but to take them out of their poverty, Right? Now, I failed in this, number one, because of my own lack of expertise in this area and lack of time I could dedicate to this project. Number two, because I went to one economist who I met him. He wasn't, you know, very religious, semi-practicing, but seemed to be dean-friendly. 
But, you know, one conversation I had with him, then I realized that, you know, he was upset at the limits. Uh, obviously, me and the muftis would place on the project in terms of Sharia compliance. I'll take you an example of that. There is a place in Bangladesh called Grameen Bank, and this person, Mohammed Grameen, won maybe, Allahualam, I think, Nobel Prize or Peace Prize or some other prize, right? Now, that was interest-based microfinance. And at that time also a lot of people were upset with ulama saying interest is haram because they thought, don't you see that the great benefit this could have? Alhamdulillah, there have been some interest-free microfinance initiatives even here in Pakistan, but nothing to the level of Grameen Bank, but at least showing it could be done. So this is an example that he sort of, I realized from him that you know he would not be happy with us putting certain restrictions, which is very unfortunate because he's actually a wonderful person. Uh, but so we lost him. Uh, then I went to a so Then I went to <laughs> Allah Akbar. Ajeev, I went to an economist who was outwardly much more religious, practicing, deen, right? I went to him. His view was that, uh, you know, whatever I say will be correct because I'm the economist and you people don't know anything about that. So we don't need this group. I'll just sit down and tell you what to do and you people should do it. So not willing really. And then he engaged in a huge, long critique of Mufti Taki, Islamic banking and boom, 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 boom. So, okay, I can't work with him, right? And so then, I mean, I, I, don't, I mean, obviously a person has to try much more than two people. I accept that. I told you I myself, number one reason I couldn't myself devote enough time to the project. But it was hard for me and I felt, and that, that's the reason I'm sharing this with you, this is also a problem. This inability of people from different backgrounds and perspectives isn't there in the dunya. You know, if I was a CEO, I can easily, I can make a committee of people from all types of different backgrounds. And just because I'm the CEO, and just for the sake of increasing the corporate profit, they will sit down and work with each other as peers. They won't be, I'm the sales guy, I'm the marketing guy, which is better. No, no, they'll all sit together, and they will do it, you know. In fact, they'll even be willing, this is a big thing, they'll be willing to do outsource consulting. They'll hire and change management, consultants, right? And say, we trust you, whatever you people say, we'll do it. Right, so that level of trust isn't there. It's a problem, whether between ulama, amongst ulama, between ulama and other professionals, actor, experts, uh, knowledge. Right, and that's another reason why. And that that also wasn't there in our first twelve years of history. You know what today, like in American law, they call expert testimony. That's there if you look at old cases. In the Qazi courts, you will see that experts testifying, jurists. Judges, experts, statesmen, bureaucrats, all working together. All working, again, not always. Again, with large gaps, large lapses. But you see it also throughout 1200 years, right? That's also something that's lacking now. In fact, even literally, there's even such few spaces and places where even any such interactions can take place. Call it idea lab, call it whatever you want. How many times will you see a mufti, an economist, a shulkser worker, and a bureaucrat sitting at one table talking about anything to do with society? It's almost non-existent, right? So these interactions don't place and engagements don't place. So that's why there's no real dynamism, synergy, and that's a problem, right? But anyway, uh, because 2017, I'll be busy with some other project. But in 2018, inshallah, we plan to resume and we plan to try that. I don't know how far it will go. Uh, it's an idea. Uh, idea also, quite frankly, I'll tell you, because there were people who tried to give us zakat for our own project, and I strictly don't take zakat 
for our project because I don't personally believe using the Hila Zakat. But when I realized the amount of money people were trying to give in Zakat, I realized that, mashallah, people have serious amounts of money to give in Zakat and apparently they trust me to use that. So maybe Allah is opening up another door for me uh, that we could do some khidmat of the poor. And that's a very big thing and I'll be telling you that in the afternoon. That is one big thing, khidmat of poor, that is missing uh, from the best of believers. Forget ordinary people. And one of the greatest attributes of the Anbiya was khidmat of the poor, sohbat of the poor, muhabbat with the poor, mahbubiyat of the poor, and khidmat of the poor, rafakat with the poor. And after the Anbiya, this used to be the hallmark of the awliyaullah. No doubt, awliyaullah, tasawuf is about zikr, guru with Allah ta'ala, tazkiyah, purification of sins. But it was also a very big thing, Right? And that's one thing is because I'm also part of that tradition of the Sawaf that we're lacking, right? We don't have that, you know. And, and, and you know, partly me also because of the English and, you know, but, uh, so, you know, and so this combined with what I told you, the land reform, because I have been to rural areas of Pakistan also. And not even once or twice, I have traveled in this country, Alhamdulillah. The type of poverty you see, Allah Akbar Kabiris, Ajeeb, you know. And the poor have no friend, they have no spokesman, they have patron, they have no patron, no benefactor, uh, they're what you call lawaris, you know. Uh, barring, you know, no doubt, there are some NGOs, there are international organizations, there are domestic organizations, there are people who are trying. But overall, the picture that you get uh, is, you know, and that's again, it comes back to politics because there are no real genuine social movements, civil movements in this country. Alright, so that was the third thing. So now, before we move to so your questions on this third thing. Okay, I mean right now I'm only going to take the ones that were actually on the topic of the first session. Okay, so I, I don't know if you literally wrote this question when I was talking because I just mentioned this, that uh, the questioner is asking about the sitting together of ulamas and different other professions. So is it because of two separate systems? This could be one reason uh, that we have two separate systems of education, religious learning and secular learning, but it's not that simple either, right? People can still get together. You will have sometimes in the name of consulting the engineer who runs the automation, whatever technology of the company, and the sales, and they all went to different systems. I mean, fine, it was a university, but they basically were differently educated, and they're willing to sit together and work together. So I think this isn't enough to explain it. Uh, no doubt, that's a separate topic. How can you integrate uh, religious education with professional education? I think that's a separate topic. Meanwhile, I'm trying to figure out how to integrate people who have non-religious education and a religious education. In fact, I think that would be the prerequisite to integrating the systems themselves. If you can't integrate persons, how are you going to be able to integrate entire systems? I want to learn Islam. Where to, oh, actually, yesterday I told where to begin on learning Islam. I will talk about that a little bit in the afternoon session again, but from a different perspective. What about convincing a particular political party to take approach on socio-economic equality? No doubt uh, that could be an effort, but that itself speaks volumes that a political party that has been around for decades would need me to go to them and give them this idea 
of social justice and economic equality. That's their job. It's like telling me, well, why not go to the doctors and tell them they should actually heal people? It's like the guy doesn't realize that, and he's in that profession, right? That's a, that's a big problem in of itself, you know. Uh, but it does point out to something, which is important, which is what in English we call advocacy, right? I mean, we need people who engage in advocacy, who go to political parties, who even, in fact, I'll go one step further than this, even join political parties with the niyat to try to, you know, bring good policies in their platforms. It doesn't mean I would necessarily advise any one of you in particular to join any specific political party, but I'm saying generally as a society, uh, that might be one problem. I don't know enough about this. Uh, I don't know enough about this in the particular context of Pakistan, but I suspect that some of these parties, their structure is so rigid that they may not be so welcoming to somebody who is coming in not because they're the same class or caste or they're just coming in purely uh, because they want to introduce new and interesting ideas and social justice to the party platform. I don't know. I don't know. Allah uh, I don't know. But things might not be as bad as I might think they are. Uh, so no doubt, if they are as bad as I think they are, more effort should be made. And if they're not as bad as I think they are, then there would be scope to do the kind of effort that you're talking about. Okay, slightly off topic, but not very, so I'll take it as interesting. When implementing Islamic law at the state level, how would differences of opinion between madhab be addressed? So I told you when you're talking about public policy, and this is one of the major things that Mufti Taki Usmani wrote in depth in that book, which is response to the critique of the Newtown ulama on some of his positions on banking, that when you're talking about a public good, greater good, systemic thing, you can cross madhabs and use different tools from different toolkits. And that's not only just to fight the war interest, that would be true for any and every public policy area. All right? And as far as personal ibadah and the fiqh of ibadah and wudu, the state has nothing to do with that. Uh, uh, so that's not an issue. That's not some, a matter that comes in front of the courts or the bureaucracy or parliament. How can these days the Qazi system be implemented? I don't think it will be implemented in these days. Uh, I don't. It's not possible to revive Islamic courts because courts are a function, uh, serve, provide a service function to a society who wants that service function. If ever you can recreate such individuals who want such a society, and then you have such a society that wants that service function, then the courts will be able to come back, and there's no other way for them to come back. The same, that's my same answer to two, three questions. How can we bring about state-level Islamic change? How can we bring about Islamic change in the parties? It's all the same answer. You have to... Uh, let me exp maybe open this up. You have to look at the seerah. So when you talk about history, the ultimate history is the history of the life of Nabi Karim Wasallam, And his, the history of his life is also a source of hidayah for us. So when Nabi Karim Wasallam was in the Meccan phase, which lasted eight to ten years before Hijra, right... Uh, in that phase, he did not try to change the society around him. State the baddurkibat. He did not try any type of polity, state, structure, system, nothing. He didn't do jihad. Otherwise, when they were torturing Sayyidina Bilal, he said, okay, we do jihad on you. No. 
when they put him in boycott in the valley, he didn't do jihad. He could have said, forget it, they're putting us in boycott in this valley. Uh, we refuse, we'll do jihad, fine, we'll die, we'll become shaheed, no problem. He didn't do that, right? Why? Because he was at the level of building individuals and building a community. Then after Hijrah, when he went to Medina Manawra, and he landed in Medina Manawra, his plan, he did not sit down with the Sahaba and plan for Makkah. No, there was no military aspect to his coming to Medina Manawra. In fact, he was fleeing from conflict. He was fleeing from conflict. The first thing he did, which had already, he had, Nabi Akim Sallallahu had already been doing and was almost completed, even before, but on arrival, the first thing he did was completely patch up the Aus and Khajraj so that there was domestic peace and harmony within Medina Manawra. Then these new people who came, the Muhajirun, you need the Makkans, he made what is called Nisbati Mu'akhat. He joined every Muhajir with one, every Ansar, so there was complete harmony within the Ummah. And then immediately he made peace treaties with the neighboring Jewish tribes, so there was complete harmony in the foreign relations. That's it. He made no plan of attacking Makkah He didn't send any message to the Quraysh that now we're society, we're coming after you. Nothing. He just wanted to live in peace. Then the Makkans, they sent an army. First in Badr, then in Uhud, and then you, those of you know, it goes on and on and on, right? Ultimately, finally then, when Nabi Akram Sassam realized that these people will never give up, right? So then he went back and he did Fatah Makkah, alright? So when you look at the way the seerah unfolded, where do we find ourselves now? We are in the pre-Hijra Meccan stage. There's no consultative state, Right? We are back at the level of individuals and trying to form communities. We're not even anywhere near society, let alone polity, let alone state. That's my reading of it, right? And I tell you openly, Jamaat Islami people have a different reading, Tanzim Islami people have a different reading, and other individual ulama may give you different readings. What can you do, right? Because the next shit will come, what if different ulama say different things, how do we know who to follow, right? You follow whoever you want, right? On this matter, Right? But my advice to you is that for 99% of you, you really don't need to figure this issue out. Uh, unless you're really, unless you're an activist who themselves is going to bring about change and you really are planning to dedicate your life, it's a big commitment and dedication to bring about change as a sign in state, then you don't need to even discover the question that who's right about how to bring about that change. It's just armchair uh, journalism that you're doing. Right, And if you truly, really are an activist who is going to dedicate the entire rest of your life in the service and khidmat of society, then yes, you meet different ulama or whichever one you feel is, uh, you know, has the correct understanding of how to bring about that change. You do it. Have no problem. All right? In a non-violent way. You can learn a lot from Gandhi, you know. Gandhi accomplished more. I know this is like heresy in Pakistan and I always do it in front of you. But Gandhi did more non-violence than some Muslims accomplished using violence. Okay, this is also done. Yeah, everybody asking the same question. Everybody wants the state, huh? Yeah, same. It's, it's, I don't know. This must have come from the men. If women are asking these questions, then we're in big trouble. Huh? <laughs> That's what I think. I mean, uh, I don't know if I should say that to you.
کتنا بولوں کتنا چھیڑوں آئی ٹوری پیو فارم اور استاذ فرماتے اتنی بات کریں جو لوگ ہضم کر سکتے ہیں مگر کبھی آپ کا قوت ہاضمہ کبھی مکمل انداز بھی مجھے نہیں ہوتا ہے اور مختلف لوگ بھی سامنے کسی کا قوت ہاضمہ زیادہ ہے کسی کا کم ہے you what i say is you need to work on individuals and communities if you want to know what would be my answer to that a wall a house is made up of walls and a wall is made up of bricks mm-hmm. nobody's ever going to build a house without good bricks nobody's going to ever be able to build a good house without good bricks but somebody says i'm going to build the house without the good bricks it's fine you go try i'm not going to stop you try I'm trying to make the good bricks. I'm trying to become a good brick. If they say, if they're clever and they say, if you ever become a good brick, can we use you in our wall? Will you give us your bricks for our wall? These are the ones that are done. Take online. Anything online. You know, sometimes I feel even the academic exercise would be a big thing, you know. Like, I, it's something in our deen we call itmam hujjat. So, because otherwise people would say, the world there's no, you know, if we take interest away, how are you going to run the economy? But now there's an answer for that. I mean, forget whether somebody's implementing it, but the fact that an answer exists, right? Or at least there's a dawah. Because the, the critic will say, no, no, what you're doing is just running 10% of the banking sector. If you ran 100%, It wouldn't work. Fine, that's your claim. But we claim that we have a way to run the 100%. Because before your attack was, if you gave us 100%, we wouldn't even be able to run it. But we have a way we would run it. You might not like the way we would run it. You might think the way we would run it wouldn't work. But we have a way that we would run it. Right? So Alhamdulillah, that has been done as far as the banking and financial sector. But that's just one aspect of a society. There are many, many other things that are there. Right? As an example, just to give you an example, I said you should read the Pakistan Constitution. Right, because right now I couldn't give you that answer. If you said, okay, let's say the ulama were to write the constitution, what would it look like? Nobody's done that, right? Uh, so even sometimes I think purely academically, if people were to do it, it would be interesting. It could even start some interesting conversations, right? It would be a platform for discussion. It's possible, I don't know. It's possible some of those groups have done that. I, I don't know. It could very well be possible that Jamaat Islami, Tanzim Islami, others may have drafted what they felt would be the right. In fact, Like, I mean, they should have, given that that's their field. Uh, okay, question about South Africa. Political parties are pushing for land redistribution. Okay, this is a slightly different situation. So the questioner is asking about when you're talking about unlawful acquisition of land in the first place, which took place in South Africa with the Dutch Boers coming in, and they were basically colonialists and they created an apartheid state. And this is a situation of, you know, in almost all of actually sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, so 100%, uh, I personally uh, believe that. 
but it's problematic, right? Because what you're talking about is somebody's great, 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 great friend that misappropriated the land. Now, what Islam, what likely, I mean, you know, I cannot live do. I mean, this would require a lot of ulama to sit down and deliberate over the matter. But this much I can tell you that Islam would also acknowledge facts on the ground to a certain extent. And there would have to be some level of sulah that would take place between the white farmers over there and the, who have been, even though they are descendants of colonial oppressors, but they themselves, a lot of them have now become just peaceful, law-abiding citizens of Zimbabwe and South Africa, right? So one way that one way the discussion could start would be that, okay, let's see if we can do some type of sulah. And you understand this concept of sulah in Islam also is not just between brother and brother or between family. It's also something used for social justice and for society, right? And it might be, for example, that, okay, well, let's see that this white farmer, how big is his family? And what is his legitimate need of income based on his legitimate standard of living with a comfortable level and maybe let him keep their farm to that extent uh, and then beyond that extent that land should be given to the government right now another thing i just i mean i don't want to because again we will stray into purely a political science class but basically things are never that easy because you know then when you give to the government well the problem is the government's corrupt right so it's not like the government is, that's why you need the just government in place already before you do the societal reforms, but then you also need just society to get this. It's a very tricky thing, right? Uh, so then people would say, well, do you really know that the government would uh, redistribute that land equitably? And unfortunately, in the cases of these African countries, the answer is no. In fact, we can guarantee you that they would not give it away equitably. And whoever the political party is, all their puppets and cronies will all be given pieces of land that it was taken away from the white farmer. right? Uh, but the point is that Islamically speaking, we won't necessarily recognize the private property ownership of somebody who acquired that land through colonialism. All right? That's not a legitimate basis of ownership. All right? There's a particular question about Islamic banking, uh, but my topic today was not Islamic banking, it was about the jurisprudence of the Sharia courts in Pakistan and how law plays in that. All right. Uh, this much I would just say that if one, you have two options in life. One is to be completely free of banks and to keep money in your drawer and to only run a business on whatever existing capital you have and have no concept of financing. Fine, obviously. That's a safe way. Second is that you say, no, I need to, for whatever reason, there can be multiple reasons for that, need to be engaged in banks. If you say that, that you have to be engaged in banks and you have only two possibilities. Those banks that everybody agrees are not Sharia compliant and are interest-based. And those banks that a lot of ulama have certified as Sharia compliant, but you might not fully understand what's the difference between them, but at least there's this difference, that there's a number of ulama who say it's Sharia compliant. So this is the only two choices you have. There's no other choice, right? So it's, I think it's, it's only rational that if you must engage in any type of business, personal current account or investment relationship with the bank, then it's obviously clear that you should choose those banks that have been certified by reputable ulama, even though you, even though that certification might be contested by others, even though you might not be able to understand, because the other choice is guaranteed uh, something that all the ulama agree uh, on that is uh, not Sharia compliant. Okay.
what should we women do to revive the spirit of Sharia? Right? That could be a whole separate ladies beyond that we can give. Okay? Uh, you have a unique role as mothers and daughters and wives. Uh, but we also have a unique role as fathers, husbands and sons. Yeah, no, these are done. Alright, but nothing different. Whatever I said today wasn't really gender specific or gender exclusive. There was nothing I said that was specific to men or women in any way. Okay? Alright. Now we move then to uh, the afternoon topic. So if you... you no. Where is it? You're going to do it? Okay. Let me open it for myself. Okay. So if you go to slide number four. Okay. So the last thing was this notion of spiritual approach. I tried to integrate all three. Uh, but today I want to actually say some very important things to you about this. So just randomly, uh, it's not really, you know, the title, not everything is in the title, okay? Just we load it up a little bit just for fun. The spiritual path, practice, effort, humility, and sincerity. This is the asal of the path. The whole purpose of tazkiyah, tasawwuf, zikr is amal. The whole purpose is amal. And the reason I'm saying this is that sometimes people get too caught up in the concepts and the theories and then the concepts and theories become an end in of themselves. No, no, no. There's only one end. There's only one goal. That's amal. Amal. Now, amal, amal. There's a lot, right? There's taqwa, there's haya, there's ikhlas, there's sidq, there's ibadah, there's akhlaq. There's a whole range of amal. But the whole purpose is amal. And if somebody gets stuck in the theory anywhere, or if somebody even gets stuck in hal, so this happened to a couple of people, right? And you also understand that if in 1400 years of Islam, there have been two or three people, Mansur Halaj, Ibn Arabi, a few others, and that's statistically, you're talking point zero 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 one percent right? That doesn't mean you leave a tradition of learning, right? But that's what happened, that they got diverted from Amal as the goal, they got some feeling, what's called hal or kefiyah along the way, and then they started making that the goal. And they also made the bigger mistake, perhaps, of trying to train others to make that the goal. And that's the problem we're still stuck with today, right? For example, fana, fana fillah. Now, fana fillah is just an Arabic phrase. What does it mean? It's the same thing Allah SWT says in Quran. means fana. It means that lose yourself in the remembrance of Allah Ta'ala's name so that you remember His name to the exclusion of everything else. So the Arabs are like that. They just come up with different words. Like the Arabic word in Quran for a head covering is khimar. Today people call it hijab. The Arabic word in Quran for the gown or cloak that women wear is jilbab. Today people call it abaya. That's just the way it is. The Arabic word in Quran for proper recitation is tartil. Today people call it tajweed. So it's happened in many other fields also. So the Arabic word in Quran is tabattal, people call it fana. But fana is not a goal in of itself, right? That you train people to get fana. No, you train people to have the zikr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that they remember him so that they never sin and they constantly do good amal. Yes, along the training process, sometimes they may have a phase of fana. Alright? 
For example, the purpose of Western education is not to give you fana in that field. It's to give you training and expertise so that you practice with proficiency in that field. But yes, somewhere along the way in final exams week or in residency, you might get fana. You might drown so deeply in your field that you just forget everything else except that particular essay that you're writing or that thought. But that's not the goal. That's just an experience that occurs along the path towards the goal. Alright? So the asal thing is amal. The reason people lack an amal is lack of effort. Or lack of humility. Or lack of sincerity. That's it. These are the three things. It's not, again now why I mention this, because some people think it's a lack of concepts or lack of theories or lack of dedication to the cause or I'm not a hardcore enough Sufi. No, no, no. That's nothing to do with it. You don't have to be more Sufi than you need to be. You just need to put in effort. You need to have humility and you have to have sincerity. If you increase your effort, you increase your humility, you increase your sincerity, believe me, your amal will go up. And you just increase your Sufi identity and your Sufi theory, your amal might not go up. And if, I'll even go further, if your amal go up only due to increasing your Sufi identity and theory, that's a delusion actually. You might you won't get istikamat on such amal. That will be a fleeting, ephemeral, transitive stage. Effort, sa'i, humility, adz, what do you say, adzi, and sincerity, ikhlas. Sa'i, adz, ikhlas. Sa'i, adz, ikhlas. Guaranteed formula, your amal will go up. Guaranteed. This is the khulasa of how Nabi Akram sallallahu trained Sahaba Akram radiyallahu ta'ala anamajmahin. When you read the lives of Sahaba, and actually even the accounts of Sahaba are captured in many hadith, the amount of effort they made for their tazkiyah, the amount of effort they made in their ibadah, the amount of effort they made in jihad fi sabilillah, the amount of effort they made in dawah deen. Allah is phenomenal. Phenomenal amount of effort. And the amount of humility they had. Allah Akbar Kabira. Hmm? And the amount of sincerity they had. Hmm? These are the three. This is the recipe. This is the ingredients and this is the recipe. And if you're after something other than amal, then I can sit here and recite Iqbal's poetry and you can say Vava. I, can re- I can't because I, I can't. I, I don't know that. But <laughs> I could have prepared like that and recited Iqbal's poetry and Rumi's poetry and talked to you about Ibn Arabi and Wahdatul Wujud. Hmm? And gotten all philosophical and theosophical and oh, it's far. Right? No benefit in any of that. Alright? Okay. So that's one thing I actually just took the title to actually tell you a couple of things. So, next slide. Authentic tradition. This slide is not all encompassing. Alright? I'm just going to talk about four people. This is very personal. I'm just sharing with my own individual journey. The authentic tradition of Islamic learning and spirituality, Alhamdulillah, has thousands of scholars. We are not people of just one, two, three, four people. Alhamdulillah. Thousands. Thousands upon thousands of people have successfully found the path of Amal and have guided others to it. Alright? I mentioned these four for a number of reasons. Number one is that very personally... I've been able to benefit from them. Number two, they are people who have published works. So it's something that can guide because a lot of the great guides of the past, we don't have their you know, authentically attributed published works. 
right? Uh, and they have works that are accessible to languages that you people know, which is English and Urdu, all right? So even that, by the way, is more than these four. And those, even the number of people I've benefited from in my life in the past college is more than four, obviously. The number of past great ulama, shayukh, whose works are in Urdu and English, that's also greater than four, right? But there's just a beginning point. You could choose to begin with a totally other list, all right? But what I'm going to tell you is about some particular mm, teachings of these four. The teachings you have to find, you can find it outside these four if you want, no problem. But the teachings are critical, all right? You'll understand what I mean when I do that. So the first of them is Imam Ghazali, Ta'ala. Imam Ghazali, Ta'ala actually came at a time in Islamic history when people, first of all, he came when the Ummah was ghalib, perhaps one of the most ghalib times in the history of Islam. You're talking about Baghdad at its prime. You're talking about a time when Europe was in the dredges of their dark ages. You're talking about a, you know, just an incredible moment in Islamic history. He came at that time. The second thing, though, that was at his time was immediately before him, in fact, in the entire century before him, notwithstanding the fact that the Ummah was Ghalib at that time, a lot of great learners and great minds of Islam started following Greek philosophy started following Neoplatonism. He comes after Ibn Sina. Ibn Sina is not the first, there's a whole line of people before that also. There's Kindi, there's Razi, there's Ibn Sina, then later there's Al-Farabi. So these are big names. People still, they, people are doing PCs on these guys also still today. Alright? And they had a huge impact. And this was dangerous because you had the height of Islamic civilization and all of a sudden it's being turned away to all of these, you know, a lot, maybe there's, there were certain elements of that philosophy which was actually uh, had nothing against Islam. But then a lot of things that were actually departures from Islam. So Imam Ghazali's particular, particular thing which we have to learn from today, and this, so you'll understand, is that if there is a dominant epistemology in your age, so for us today it's called secular liberalism. In his century, the century which preceded him and in which he lived, it was the Greco-Arabic tradition. All right, So it's the same. The last, what he did to the Greek philosophy is the same thing that we have to do to secular liberalism. And what is that? And I borrow, there was one uh, scholar of Ghazali who said, talks about it using this American term, the good, the bad, and the ugly. So he took all of the philosophy and he separated out the good, the bad, and the ugly. The ugly is outright kufr, the bad is bida, and the good is perfectly acceptable, right? And the same thing is true for secularism, the same thing is true for liberalism, the same thing is true, that there are some things that are good in it, right? Uh, and there are some things that are bad in it, and there are some things that are downright ugly in it, all right? So what Imam al-Ghazali did uh, is an incredible thing that he did in his century. And that's why if you know, there's a Hassan hadith of Nabi Karim sallallahu which mentions that there will be a mujaddid, that there will be a person who at the turn of every hijri, kamari, century, Allah Ta'ala will raise them from the ummah to renew Islam. The overwhelming majority opinion of that century is that Imam Ghazali was the mujaddid of his time. Alright? That was one thing. Now amongst the many ways he did that, one way, uh, where, is, if you remember what I said yesterday, he slightly didn't do it, in the sense, with the sof. Because what he did was in the sof, he separated it out, 
But then what he did was he used the good in philosophy. He tried to explain the Sawwaf sometimes using that good philosophy because he thought that if I can catch the philosophers in Dawah, the closest and best way I can catch them is to show them that the virtues that they loved the philosophers for so much, those virtues are to be found all the more in the Oliya. Right? But I think that's the second lesson of his, that in this century for Dawah, right? Now, if, I'm not saying the only Dawah in the world is not to be done on English-speaking elites, right? But if you're going to do Dawah on English-speaking elites, then the same way Imam Ghazali tried to reach out to the people in this time with something that they could resonate with and connect with, the same thing has to be done now. The same thing has to be done now. That's the second lesson from him. Third lesson, now going specifically to his, let's say if you will, theories and concepts and practices of the Sawwuf. One of the greatest, two of the main features, I'd say three of the main features of Imam Ghazali, Rimata's understanding of the Sawwuf. One was when he writes and talks about Yaqeen. And it's one of the most beautiful articulations of Yaqeen. That when you embark on a path of zikr and worship, and when you start leaving the sins, and when you start becoming a person of practice, and you start having taqwa and sunnah, it's only then that you will get Yaqeen. What happens is a lot of people, the big misunderstanding we find today, is they say the reason I don't practice is because I don't have yakin. So they, they've reversed it. I don't practice because I don't yet have yakin. No, no, no. You will only get yakin through practice. Right? You will only get yakin through practice. And his whole own individual life story is about that. That basically he wanted this yakin. He felt he didn't have that yakin. And he embarked on a journey to increase his own amal and practice in order to get that yakin. So I think that that life effort and sacrifice of his is also a big lesson to us. That sometimes you'll have to sacrifice. Simply speaking, sometimes you have to pinch your dunya to get more deen. Sometimes you have to squeeze your dunya to get more Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, more closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And he was willing to do that. And he was willing to do that. So that was one aspect of his yakin. Second one of his excellent explanations is on Nabuwa. His understanding of Sayyidina Rasulullah Wasallam and the concept of Nabuwa and Prophet and Prophecy is one of the most brilliant things that we've ever read. Alright? And it shows that this love and connection for Sayyidina Rasulullah Wasallam is beyond just emotional. He basically, Sayyidina Rasulullah as a murshid, Sayyidina Rasulullah as a sheikh, Sayyidina Rasulullah as a hadi. That's how he, that, this was his relationship with the sunnah and hadith. He really, really took the Prophet and his entire sunnah and everything. Sometimes he just takes one hadith and the way he talks about it. It's the way today people, this, I'm going to explain to you, this is the problem. That we don't talk about the Prophet that way, but sheikh said something. So this blows the person away. That the sheikh said this. He talks like that about the Prophet it's ajeeb when he talks about hadith. Right? Although he wasn't a hadith scholar, and it's not like he has huge hadith commentaries, but in his works on Tasawwuf, when he talks about these hadith that are talking about practice and adab and akhlaq, the way he explains it, the way he talks about it, it's a beautiful, it shows the way to get tarbiyah from Nabuwa and tarbiyah from the sunnah. Alright? And a third, well now I'm actually thinking of a few more. I mean, I'm going to have to stop because Imam Ali, I can tell, I, I once taught, how long would that have been? 
14 times 28 times 100, 2,800 minutes. How many hours is that? More than 40 hours. I've taught more than 40 hours of Zali course. Alright? So, how can I tell you? Right? So, I'll just share with you the first three that came to my mind. There are more than three that are coming. So, the first was Yakin, the second was Nabuwa. Alright? The third was Akhlaq. Because in the way that he did that, you, see, you have to go really deep to figure that out. Because initially, you'll be you'll you'll find it uncomfortable that he's trying to use that philosophical explanation of virtue and ethics and character to rope the philosophers in, right? But when you see how deeply he understood the depth of akhlaq of Nabi Kareem sallallahu and the the refinement of character that Allah Taala wants insan to have, that's also amazing. It's also amazing. His exposition on character. And his, his whole ca- book, Inayal al-Muddin on this, is one of the most amazing uh, expositions on acquiring good character. Alright? So like I said, so this was the point of being Yaqeen, Nubuwa, Tarbiyah through Sunnah and Akhlaq. Now these three things, I'm not saying Mawazah is the only person who's done that. But I'm just using a few thinkers to highlight to you the real, real content matter of spirituality. You can get it from whoever you're comfortable with. Alright? Second, is Imam Rabbani Shaykh Ahmed Sir Hindi Rimalatana. Again, now let's look at the history. Now he came in a time, if those of you know your Mughal history, uh, that he was living uh, first at the time of Emperor Akbar and then Jahangir and then finally just at the latter moments, Aurangzeb. Now if you look at the history from Akbar to Aurangzeb, you will find a huge transformation. Akbar was a person who was totally uh, gone, but really way astray in terms of his deen. So much so that he made a new deen, which he called deen Akbari, and then later he called it deen Ilahi. Allahu Akbar Kabira. Hmm? I mean, even to make a new deen itself is wrong. Then to name it after yourself, wrong. Then to call it deen Ilahi. La hawla wa la quwata illa many element, One element of that deen uh, was that people should make sajda to him. People should make sajda to him. Right? I don't think I need to go further. Uh, that one thing is even enough. There's a lot though. Uh, if ever you were to see, you would be stunned that how is this possible? How could somebody now, because he was Mughal emperor, again, the state, he had the enforcing mechanism. He actually implemented and enforced his deen on the entire South Asian subcontinent. Right? Which is now India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, Nepal, Bhutan, whatever. Right? All of it. He implemented. Like people say, implement Sharia. He implemented Dina Ilahi across the South Asian subcontinent. Allahu Akbar Kabira. Now, if you know your history about Aurangzeb, Aurangzeb repealed, reversed all of that entirely and actually revived the Qazi courts and revived Islam and Sharia. Now how did this transition happen? How did you go from this? From an Akbar like, Ork, uh, like Akbar to an emperor like Aurangzeb? Literally. Hindu historians even write this. This transition took place due to one man. <laughs> it was a one man effort and show. Imam Rabbani Sheikh Ahmed Sir Hindi Ramtala. So if you want to talk about bringing about systemic change. He's only Allah have done it. He's not alone. There are other examples of say. They're awliyaullah, mashaykh who have done it. Hmm? Ajeeb. Alright? 
But that's a separate, uh, I mean, that's one of his major features. But right now I wanted to talk to you about certain, to use his uh, writings on Tasawwuf to highlight certain concepts for you. Alright, uh, so we got the, we got some of the building blocks, Yakin, Tarbiyah through Nubuwa, and viewing Nubuwa as your source of Rushd and Akhlaq from Imam Ghazali Matana. Imam Rabani Sheikh Ahmed Sir Hindi Ramtana. Number one, he was able to entirely, completely purge and purify the Sawwuf from these notions of Wahdatul Wujud, that the world is the shadow of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and all these, what in Fanzingus they call theosophical concepts, the, theolog- trying to insert philosophy into theology, they call it theosophy. Into, entirely, he writes, he is writing, is refuting each and every one of these things, one by one by one by one by one. Alright? So you can say basically, you know, um, purifying the aqaid, to have pure aqidah, if you want to just give it a title, those of you who are taking notes. Okay? Second, is he uh, really cleared out this concept of bid'ah, right? Which is in English you'd call innovative practices. That there should be no bid'at. So when you're doing practices, amal, to get closer to Allah subhanahu wa Whatever you can think of today even. He's already written about it. You want to talk about milad, or you, I mean, the bar below al milad al-nabi. He talks about that. You can talk about tombs, shrines. He is really the first person first person in South Asia to write about all the issues and to write about them forcefully. All these things that and they're still going on today unfortunately in many places. But you find that this person tried to stop it then and he was very successful and at least then being able to save some of the rightly guided Oliya Mashaik of his time who were slightly beginning to show some of those tendencies. He was able to swerve a lot of them back onto the path of Sharia. A lot of them back. In fact, all the Jishti, Qadri, Surawardi, whoever you want to say, Mashaik of that time, are all indebted to him. And they all acknowledge and write like that. If it wasn't for him, we would have, we were going that way. Right? We were going that way. Okay? The third thing uh, that he had, uh, again, for him also, there's more than three. Right? Uh, is his notion of Sharia. Right? And he has all these writings on the concept of Sharia. And he says the Sharia is not just law, it's a way of life. And he says the whole purpose of the path of the Sawwuf is to live and practice Sharia. For example, in one of his writings he says that those people who live and practice and call others to Sharia, a Sharia life, are far better than the Sufis who are simply doing their own zikr for hours in the mountains. Right? Because he understood that if you can't just benefit yourself, you have to benefit others, right? And you can't just make zikr. Zikr is also not an end in of itself. It's a means. It's a means to what? The goal of every believer is to follow Sharia, right? So, I guess since I did three with Imam Ghazali, I'll just stick with three with Imam Rabbani, right? Then you go next. Uh, in fact, you show the next two together. The next two together. This is Sheikh Mulan Rashid Amangangoy Ramtale and Sheikh Mulan Ashraf Ali Tanvi Ramtale. What happens here is that now I will tell you this not just about the Sawaf, every part of our religion. I think it might be just the nature of religion that 
religion is a very delicate matter. And there's always some slight off-course veerings, leanings. And every now and then somebody keeps having to steer the boat aright. Like it happens in our own journey. Right? That's what will come later. But that's what a shaykh basically is. That in our own journey towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, no matter how learned we might be, no matter how we want to be sincere, every now and then we have a little bit of off-course leanings, a little bit of departures. And if there's somebody who's looking at us and tracking us, he tries to keep us on track. So this is what these two, I mean, I'm combining them because it was basically a combined effort because they're contemporaries of each other. Shaykh Malan Rashid Amin Gangoi and Shaykh Malan Ashraf Ali Now, all of the above, obviously, everybody is, you know, on yakin, tirbiyatru nabuwa, akhlaq, pure akaid, you know, elimination of bidat, establishing and understanding that the true goal is sharia. So, alhamdulillah, they all did all of that. And... Uh, a few, let's say, more things, right? Not that they were absent in the others, but I can use them to highlight a few more things. One is if you heard me saying, because I've been saying it a lot on this particular trip, was to combine the path of ihtiyat and the path of ihtidal. To combine ihtiyat and ihtidal. This is a hallmark of Hazrat Gungo and Hazrat Tanvijamtane. Otherwise, normally, when a person sometimes in the name of ihtiyat they lose their ihtidal, right? And sometimes in the name of ihtidal they lose their ihtiyat. What does that mean? Sometimes in the name of ihtiyat, let's take for example the field of dawah, alright? So in dawah, if you only do ihtiyat, then, because I have traveled and without naming them, I have traveled to some places, or even in, I've seen some circles in Pakistan, that you can become a very closed circuit community. What happens is it's just, you know, 50 to 100 to 300 families who are all ultra-conservative, ultra-orthodox, and basically they just think everybody else is completely astray and doesn't practice properly. And they're not able to help others. They're basically doing the same mistake that Imam Rabbi said, but he was saying that there's an individual Sufi who's just making zikr on the mountain. This isn't an individual, this is a small community, right? Uh, but they're not able to help others. Uh, and that's not the mission of dawah, uh, because Nabi Karim did outreach, right? But on the flip side, uh, it doesn't mean you drop your etiyat, you have to have etidal in dawah. What does it mean that if you go and do dawah, it doesn't mean then for the sake of bringing people close, you know, once I used to tease the kids, I said that, okay, let's say I call somebody on Jummah to have a concert in the masjid at Lums right before Jummah, and in the name of the concert, you'll all come. And once I see you there, I'll unplug the guitar, plug in the mic and give the azan and I got you. Right? So, and that's fine. That would be a way to do dawah. But there's no ihtiyat in that. That's, you've lost your ihtidal. Right? So you have to have ihtidal. You know, there's certain amount of outreach you can do. With, and this is a very tricky thing. You know? So I'll give you, I'll give you, I'll give you an example. Once I went to one country... And one of these, you know, people who I feel have the etiyat on the I, I celebrate and salute them for their incredible taqwa. But they don't have the etiyat. So he critiqued me because I do this radio program in South Africa on Thursday nights. So he started critiquing me that, you know, you... And this is... The, the name of the radio station is called Channel Islam International. Just so you know, it's an Islamic radio station. I also accept there are a couple of things that they do that may not be the most strict. They don't happen on my program. All right? But there are a couple of things that they do, right? Uh, that I may not necessarily agree with. 
They have a mufti, they have a shri advisor who is a mufti who is actually known to be a fairly strict person in that country. So this person came and he critiqued me. You, you know, you're sheikh and you speak on radio. I said, okay, Mufti Muhammad Shafi, and I'm sitting in Karachi, Mufti Muhammad Shafi, Ramadan used to do a program in Radio Pakistan. At a time when on Radio Pakistan, they were also, not during his program, but there were also musical programs and readings of drama plays and all types of things, which is much worse than anything Channel Islam International doesn't have any music, right? So why did Mufti Muhammad Shafi do that? Because he had that etadal, Right? In his own program, there's etiyat, but he's going to use an opportunity for dawah. He's going to do the outreach. He's not going to say that I'm not going to go on radio. Right? I'm not going to go on radio. He went on radio. He went on the radio. Alright? So this was their foresight. The Mufti Muhammad Shafi, as you know, is one of the great students of Sheikh Malana Ashraf Ali Tanvi. He's in that Tanvi tradition. Right? So, you ha- so this so one way I'm using dawah to illustrate to you the path of etadal and path of etiyat. Right? Uh, I think, take so that's one way I can mention. Second, I, actually the rest of the things, uh, let me just see. Uh, yeah, so you just actually go to the next slide because I actually made a slide out of it for you. So there are three things, uh, sorry, we'll stop over there. Now I'm going to, now giving you this example of etadal and etiyat, there are three particular things uh, why don't you show all three of them first? I'll read them and then you hide the last two. So, Sheikh, so the three things I'm going to take from Malana Rashida Mangangoya and Malana Ashafali Tanvidam Tanai. Sheikh, the concept of Sheikh, non exclusivity and formal zikr. So, let's go look at the first one, Sheikh. What happens is that it's a natural human tendency to do something. Uh, you can call it hero worship, you can call it personality worship. There's a tendency towards shaks prasti in a human being. Max Weber captured this when he talked about charismatic leadership. There's charisma, there's authority, there's attraction, there's persona, etc., etc. Right? Now again, remember, ihtiyat and ihtidal. Right? So on the one hand, you need that to inspire and motivate people. If you lower someone too much, then they won't, a person, if they have, they view him as having no authority whatsoever, then they won't be able to inspire and motivate them. And more importantly, they won't be able to do islah. They won't be able to correct them. You won't take islah from someone unless you think they have some authority, right? You won't take rectification, correction, guidance, instruction, daunt, dipak, nesamdi, ragra, Unless somebody has some authority over you, right? But at the same time, you have to have etidal. If you elevate a person too much, right? Then again, the sheikh is a means, the sheikh is not the end. Sheikh is a means. The professor is a means, he's not the reason you go to university. He's a means to help and guide you in, as an instructor. He's not the end. He's part of the process. He's not the process. Alright, so their writings and their understanding, but even more than their, on this particular first one, even more than their writings, their own practice. The kind of sheikhs they were, let's put it that way, right, is really a role model of how to be a sheikh. I don't know how to explain this to you now. This is, I'm bringing you on this side of the table, so to speak, right, because I told you it's very personal for me, things that I personally benefited from. So if somebody wants to know 
Right? What? How should a sheikh be? Right? How should a sheikh interact? These two people, Hazrat Gangoi Ramtane and Hazrat Tanda, are perfect role models for this. Very perfect. Nobody's perfect, but near perfect. Excellent role models for this. Okay? So even more than their writings on this do exist, but it's their own lived life. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? Right? Sometimes you might experience that in your corporate jobs that, okay, you joined, but you had a really good manager. You thought, okay, you know, that's the way a manager should be. And if you really trained on that person for a long time, and that's ideally what residence is supposed to be as well. So when you become a manager, you use the same managerial practices and things that you noticed in that good manager that you had the good fortune to train under. All right? And it's important that we take an example from more recent past for that. Uh, because Imam Rabbani and Imam Ghazali were living in times so different that to be a sheikh today like they were, it's just not going to happen. And to try to do that would be very awkward. There will be a lot of what we call takalluf and tasannu. There will be a lot of formality and artificiality in that. But these two, Hazrat Tanvi Ramtai and Gangoi Ramtai, are great examples for that. So that's the first. Second, non-exclusivity. This is another problem. So what I'm doing basically is I'm trying to address some misconceptions that exist in certain circles of the Sawuf, right? Non-exclusivity means that uh, they didn't have, they weren't exclusive, that you can only be their students or they're the only sheikh or their method is the only method. Even, interestingly, and again, I'm a very blunt person for everyone, including traditions I myself may belong to and respect, some of the people today in Sheikh Ashraf Ali Tanvamta's line, they have unfortunately fallen to this level of exclusivity. That's completely against his own mizaj. You know. Once somebody uh, wrote him, and one of, uh, uh, one of uh, a sheikh from his own line himself told me this, that once somebody wrote him that I'm looking for a sheikh. So he wrote back and said, okay, there's this one Chishti sheikh, there's this one Qadri sheikh, there's this one Nakshamandi sheikh. It's an interesting thing. First thing, he didn't mention himself. And number two, he gave him recommendations from each of the three maybe major uh, different methodologies that were around at this time. Today you write somebody in his line, 90% of them will say, they can we only accept Hazrat And is he made these three, four people exist in Pakistan and you should only go there, right? But they weren't like that. Non-exclusivity. There's a famous incident of somebody who goes to Sheikh Ashraf Ali Tanvi, wants to become a student, he sends it to Sheikh Madni, Sheikh Madni sends it back to Sheikh Tanvi. He's just, you know, they're just playing tennis with him, right? And even more importantly, by non-exclusivity, is they tried, uh, and you know, like I said, because I'm telling you, sometimes after a person passes away, you know, their legacy is not as intact as when they were alive, they tried that being a student of sheikh should not become some type of separate group identity, right? So it's not sectarian because sect means difference in aqidah and theology. But it becomes sometimes such a distinct group that the Arabic word tafalluqa, making a firqa, not in terms of theological sect, but in terms of some distinct differentiated group. Now the sign for this, and it's very difficult, right? And I, I've not been able to 100% successfully do this myself, I confess. The sign for this non-exclusivity is in Arabic, we call Adam al-Mughayra. 
Mughayrat means that when two people are sitting, they should not feel rare, rare to each other. Right? Like if I sit next to a person in Tablik Jamaat, I shouldn't feel like that, that he's in Tablik and I'm not. If I make him feel like that or he makes me feel like that, then one of us is guilty of being exclusivist. Right? Uh, or, similarly, if I'm a student of one sheikh and another person of another sheikh, and basically we feel that with each other, oh yeah, he's, you know, not my peer by, right? And so this becomes a little bit of a, you know, not some animosity, but a slight, slight fussle. So no, being, having any group identity cannot create any fussle, or not be a fossil in your ummah identity. Now that's much easier said than done. That's what I'm telling you because I can't even 100% manage this. It's much easier said than done. But the point is that at least to articulate that and to keep repeating it and to keep reinforcing it and to try your best to practice it and lead by example. Right? Uh, so this was another uh, very special thing about these two people, at least in their lifetime and in their own lived practice. Alright? And then third, formal zikr. This is also a very important thing. By formal zikr, uh, maybe I, I might want to reconsider the English for this term. Understand that there's two types of zikr. One is those zikr, adhkar, that are thabit min sunnah So you can call it masnoon adhkar. And there's quite a lot of them. Right? Subhanallah wa bahamdi al-adheem la hawla wa la quwata illa billah. Right? Oh, some la ilaha illallah. Okay? Lot of lot, salawat, drushif, istighfarat, many things, du'as, so many things, right? Muhaddisin have compiled proper books on this. In fact, one of the greatest works on this, which was also recently translated into English and is also in Urdu and Arabic, the great Imam al Nawi himself, is Kitab al Adhkar, where he tried to gather, he may not have every single one, but he gathered a very large amount of the Adhkar that are mentioned in the authentic, reliable hadith of Nabi Kareem sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Alright. That's the first type of dhikr. Right? Then there's a second type of dhikr. The second type of dhikr is, you can call it, now, I'm just, I'm coming up with this term myself, and I'm not coining an istilah. Right? That you go run with this. This is what we learned. No, no, no. I'm just freely speaking. I don't want to coin any, I'm not formally launching Terminology here, okay? But you can call it izafi zikr. You can call it extra zikr. Maybe you could call it like a training method or a tool. The bottom line is this is that zikr, mode of zikr, method of zikr, form of zikr, which is not mentioned in the sunnah of Nabi Kareem sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Now, if I were to be more precise with you, and if you remember, and I, I first, and this is why I took it, I first actually was going to redo those slides this year. But again, it takes me too much time to repeat. But if you weren't here last year, you can again view that on YouTube. I talked about this, and I established that from Sahih Hadith, that you can make dhikr. So just because otherwise the first question that comes to a person is, well, why in the world would you do any dhikr that is not mentioned in the sunnah of Nabi Kareem sallallahu I already did that for you last year. It's clearly established from that very same sunnah that is perfectly, perfectly, completely, absolutely acceptable and permissible to do a type of dhikr, a form of dhikr that was not done by the Prophet 
that's something that might be even worth doing again. Let's see if I get... But let me first tell you about this second type, all right? Uh, you just have to trust me on it and then see, because I have established it uh, through proofs and references in the slides from last year, okay? But even though it is permissible to do that extra zikr, how you conceptualize that extra zikr, how you emphasize and prioritize that extra zikr, what role that extra zikr should or should not play in your spiritual development, that is also a brilliant articulation of Sheikh Mulan Rashid Amangangui and Sheikh Ashraf Ali Tanvi So I will share that with you. Number one. So number one is that it's permissible. They also do make that clear also. That's another thing that they make clear. Okay. Number two is that, now this is going to be very tricky what I'm going to tell you, that its status is secondary, but in the initial stages, its benefit to you might be primary. It's a unique thing. Its status, its daraja, is secondary, but initially in its benefit to you, it might be primary. And the way they explain this, they say that zikr is this zikr is being done first as ilaj. In fact, if you... I'll do it for you verbally, but there's another slide coming later, but just keep it here. As ilaj. Ilaj means as a cure. Okay? Now what does it mean? For example, let's go back to the first type of zikr, which I told you is masnoon zikr. Sabat min sunnah Even greater than that is the fard zikr, like salah, the fard, the faraid, active ibadat. Now what happens is somebody, even in the faraid, has an illness of ghafla, has an illness of waswasa. So that's an illness. And that doesn't go away by praying more fard salah. Right? So now, forget even masnoon zikr. It doesn't even go away by praying more fard ibadat. So what a person needs is something else which is ilaj which is a cure. So this secondary in status, zikr, which is the non-sunnah zikr, which are methods of zikr that were designed by awliyaullah, right? And they vary, and hence you have these different terms, Naqshamandi, Chishti, Qadri, right? And actually those words simply refer to different methods and curricula of zikr. So those zikr are of secondary status in terms of their ajr, in terms of their thawab, much less than the ajr thawab you would get from doing sunnah zikr, but in the beginning, they're done as ilaj, as treatment. And they can treat the problem more than the masnoon zikr, because the masnoon zikr was for qurb, which comes later. Mujmal, ijmalan, mutlak, mutlak, qurb. And these zikrs are designed specifically for specific ailments. Specifically for specific ailments. All right, so it's like what you would say, sort of in medicine. This is a targeted medicine. This is a general tonic. All right, but because it's secondary in status, and because it's being used as an elage, so it should never be a goal in of itself. It's only a means, and it's a means to the end. Now listen to this very carefully. It's a means to an end of being able to do the masnoon athkar without the illness of ghafla. That's its purpose. So as soon as a person reaches that stage, 
where they can do the Masnoon Athkar without the illness of Maghafla, then they no longer need to do the Athkar of the Susla or the Athkar of the Oliya. They simply have to do the Athkar of Nabi Akrim Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Now, another person, and in fact, in particular, Shaykh Nuhan Rashid Ahmad was very deeply inspired by Imam Rabbani This is something that Imam Rabbani wrote specifically and explicitly when talking about this Naqshimali method of zikr. And he writes in one of his letters that for the beginner, what he calls Mubtadi, for the beginner, I told you it's more beneficial initially, they should do this type of formal zikr. Because to cure the illness of ghafla and wasawa and lust and anger, etc. And then he says for the person who's intermediate, like once those major things have been resolved, then he should move to Tilawati Quran. Tilawati Quran, that's Muslim, that's Sabbat Min Sunnah. Just Tilawat. Kasrat Tilawat. Just Tilawati Quran, Tilawati Quran, Tilawati Quran, Tilawati Quran. And they should drop that other zikr to a very small amount. And then after that, the person should just pray nawafil. That's it. Nafwafil salah. More salah. Tajjud, That's all they should do. As far as extra zikr. That's all they should do. And that was very basically what the Sahaba Kram did. The Sahaba Kram were at that level that their real extra ibadat was to pray long. Uh, and because that includes talawat. Because you recite Quran inside salah. So it includes the talawat. It includes the first thing which is yad ilahi. So you did the formal zikr to cure the ghafla so you could remember Allah. Then you did recitation of Qur'an. Now you can pray salah while reciting Qur'an and remembering Allah. He says that's the best way to go. Right? But it's a process. It's a process. So Imam Rabbani is also very firm on this third thing. And in fact, then Imam Rabbani took it one step further, which... Is it now maybe Malashidam Gawi has this more, Malashidam has this a little bit less. And Imam Rabban took his next step further, which is Dawa. That then, even then, when now you've reached this level, even better than you even doing a lot of Nawafil Salah is Dawa. He's very focused on Dawa. Alright? Uh, and that's why you find that the people who are from his line are more into Dawa. And you find that the people who are in the other lines are a little bit more subdued, let's say, about their da'wah. Let's just put it that way. Okay. Now going back to non-exclusivity, one of the things that was there in Shaykh Rashafalitani and Shaykh Rashidah Mangungui and Imam Rabbani, well, let's just stick to, it was in Rashidah Mangungui and Shaykh Rashafalitani, which may not be there today and any of the people who claim to follow any of these people, is that they would not judge others according to their own mizaj. For example, so let's take this example. That if there is one mizaj, which is one temperament, that you don't, you you know, most people shouldn't make so much dawa. So fine, I, I, I follow that temperament, then you should try to make maximum dawa. Alright? So if somebody is on that temperament, then no, I follow a line of shayukh, and you know, they don't really believe so much in dawa, and we should just, you know, do our own ibadat, and that's it. Fine, I'm not going to judge you on my temperament. That's fine, if that's what your sheikh said, you do that. Don't do Dawah, right? Uh, in fact, uh, because I was talking to you about the Sawuf, but when it comes to usul of Dawah, then the greatest person in the past century for that is Malana Ilyasri Malatana. And his figure was this, that Dawah should be 
as much as possible because da'wah is what benefits the masses. And he took this again from his understanding of nubuwa because the anbiya came not to just guide small groups of humanity to Allah Ta'ala. The anbiya came to guide masses of humanity towards Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala. And the way to guide masses of humanity isn't through darloom or madrasa, isn't through high level tasawwuf. The way to guide masses towards humanity is da'wah. Right? And he's also basically in that mizaj of Imam Rabbani Alright? But part of the non-exclusivity thing is not to judge others who may have another valid, acceptable, no doubt different to yours, mizaj. Right? And that's also, again, something I told you very hard. Much easier said than done. And we've not been able to achieve or enact 100% success, as I already told you, in the non-exclusivity thing. I'll share with you something about that also. So once I asked one of my teachers, Maana Munzur Ahmed, Chinyoti Rimalatali passed away a few years ago. This question, a question pertaining to this non-exclusivity thing. I said that, you know, we'd call him Ustalji, my teacher, you know, I notice this in people, that whoever is in one line, he just thinks that his line is better, right? Let me just do this in Urdu first and then I'll translate it in English, alright? So I asked that I saw that every person has understood their تو نے فرمایا کہ دیکھیں حقیقت یہ کہ دین کے خدمات کے ہر شعبے کے فضیلت کے ہم قائل ہیں کسی ایک کی افضلیت کے ہم قائل نہیں دینی خدمات کے ہر شعبے کے فضیلت کے ہم قائل ہیں کسی ایک کی افضلیت ہم قائل نہیں ہیں میں نے کہا استاد جی یہی تو معاملہ ہے کہ ہر بندہ اپنا ہی شعبہ اپنا ہی مزاج اپنا طریقہ اپنا شیخ اپنا ادارہ اپنا منہج اپنا مسلک جو بھی ہے اسی کی افضلیت کے قائل ہیں انہوں نے کہا کہ ہاں اس زمانے میں اس زمانے میں ایسا ہے اور وجہ یہ ہے کیونکہ اب اس زمانے میں لوگوں کا ایمان کمزور ہے تو ان کی ایمان کی کمزوری کی وجہ سے وہ چلنے پڑیں گے جب تک وہ اپنا اس لائن کو افضل نہ سمجھیں تو آپ ان کو نہ چھیریں ان کو اپنے اس جنون میں چھوڑ دیں اور جو کسی بھی کام میں نہیں لگیں آپ ان کی فکر کریں وہ کہیں لگ جائیں جو لگیں بلا وہ تھوڑا سا تعصب ان میں ہو یا تھوڑا سا جنون اس میں ہو یا تھوڑا سا وہ اپنا ہی طرز کو افضل سمجھتے ہیں کم از کم وہ لگ تو گیا جو نئے لگائے ان کی فکر کریں الحمد للہ آئی ہیڈ سو مچ سکون فرام دس اینسر سو دیٹس دا وے آئی ایون مینج دا ایکسکلوسیوٹی بیکاز آئی ٹولڈ یو کینٹ ایلیمنیٹ اٹ سو ناؤ آئی ٹولڈ یو دس از ہاؤ آئی ڈیو ود ایکسکلوسیوٹی سو فار دا پیپل لسننگ ان دا ادر کنٹریز ہو نو انگلش سو My teacher said uh, that, uh, that we believe in the virtue and merit of every single branch of deen and way of serving and guiding and practicing deen, but we don't believe in the unique, exclusive superiority of one way over all the rest. And then when I asked him, but this is exactly what I'm asking you, this is what I see in the people, that they, whatever they practice or whoever they're affiliated to or whatever group they have membership in or whoever they study or whoever their sheikh is, they view that to be superior to the others. So he said that, yes, this is a problem in the current age because people's iman is weak. And because their iman is weak, they won't be motivated and inspired and stimulated to do amal unless they think that their way is better. And I thought, when I think about that, it's kind of true in your dunya also, right? When you choose to major in physics, why will you study all night to become a scientist, if that's your goal? 
Because you must think that physics is better than economics, right? And if you're stuck, and that's the kid, so I don't know what to major in, I don't know if I should do physics, I should do economics, I should do philosophy, I should do history. But he's stuck. <laughs> and he keeps going around in circles, right? And the guy who says, no, but this is the better way. But he can do it. So I've observed that in, you know, in, in world, in dunya also, not just in deen, right? So that's a, a nice, beautiful way, and this is why you need... I mean, another thing, you know, and that's why I mentioned these names, but also the living tradition. You really need to sit with living mashayikh, shayukh, and ulama. Because see this nugget, see this one sentence I told you from this one person. It's helped me for years. It was like a 10-minute conversation. It's been guiding me for 10 years now. I mean, more. This conversation happened, I was in 2003. For 13 years, this 10-minute conversation has given me immense guidance. There are not many people like that left on this earth that you spend 10 minutes with them and you can be guided for 10 years of your life. Ye khas. Kya batai apka? Chalo hum mukammal in cheezo se maroom to na. Na waqif na. Kuch talash me to hum. Kuch talab, kuch chahat ho. Pher asun to Allah Ta'ala hidayat dene wala hai. Allah Ta'ala hidayat dene wala So I jump back to the non-exclusivity, to the formal zikr. So uh, again, so this is what I told you. So I ended it with that Imam al-Rabbani to take it even one step further, that dawah, right? So there's different understandings, right? And then, so and I had already talked to you about dawah in terms of the ihtidal and ihtiyat in dawah, okay? So, and again, the purpose of this was not to confine you to just these four, but to show you that there are very real substantive things to be learned from this tradition, and I just showed you what I personally learned from these four. And that's in front of you. Right now I did it for you live. And I think all of you would see that that was some real learning that took place. This is real help for us. This is real guidance. This is real tarbiyah. Okay? Alright. So, at the next slide, uh, number seven. So, then what? Now, in order to do the practice, uh, let us put this way. There are two things. I'm going to do this for you very quickly. These are just two lists that I made. The first is the training, to be trained to do amal. And the second is for me to tell you what those amal are. So I'm going to do both for you very quickly. The training, the motivation, inspiration, learning, training, to become a person of amal, to become a person of practice. And concretely, discreetly, what are those amal practices that we should be trying to do? Okay? So first, the training. So the first thing, and that is suhbah. As you know, there's a lot of emphasis on sohbah in our deen. This is something that I did a bit more detail last year, so again, I'm not going to repeat it, but I will just say those verses in hadith for you. Ya wa That might be difficult, no doubt, to find out who are as-sadiqeen, but you might be able to find at least relative to yourself, right? That this person has more sit than me. And let me tell you, that's enough to benefit from a person you can actually benefit from a person who may not be 100% Siddiq. But if he is more Siddiq than you, you can benefit from them tremendously. Right? And then whenever it comes a time that you're no longer able to benefit from that person, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will take you onward and guide you further. Alright? And the word there, kunu and ma'a. Both of these Arabic words are intense. Kunu as you know, kun fayakun. It talks about your very wujud. <laughs> That's an intense level of company. That my very wujud will be, and to what extent will you align your wujud with that person's wujud? Ma, maya. That's the most intimate 
companionship, the most intense and intimate companionship. Alright? Kunu ma sadikin. Then Nabi Akrim sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, Al-mar'u ala dini khalilihi. That a person will be on the deen of whoever they choose to make their khalil. Now khalil again is your close, what we call bosom buddy, your khalil, your yar, your real best friend, right? And then the Prophet continued onward, so each and every one of you should reflect and consider carefully may you khalil, who you choose to make your khalil. <laughs> make that a wise choice, alright? Now, how does the sohba work? So this is enough, one verse and one hadith will be enough to establish it, right? How does it work? Okay, uh, so I, I need to, it's slightly different for men and women. It's actually significantly different for men and women. For men in the good old days, in the good old days, when shayukh, when there was no travel, so there were, were no airlines for Sheikh Tanvir Amte to fly all over the world too. <laughs> I'm sure if there were, he might have, you know, I mean, his mizaj was not that level of dawah, but still, kuchhota to say, right? Normally a person would go themselves and travel. Normally the student would go and themselves travel and spend some time in the sohba of a Sheikh. That's another beautiful thing about these two. Shaykh Rishidam and Gangoi Ramtale, when he felt a person had benefited enough from his sobha, he actually would prevent them from traveling to him. And there's a beautiful letter between one of his students and him. And you can tell the student is, you know, ashik and desperate and wants to go. And the Shaykh is writing, no, and this is going on, right? And the Shaykh then, then finally writes him uh, that, you know, if you're not able to benefit from all that I've already taught you and instructed you in and all of your prior companionship in Sohba sitting in your own hometown if you haven't reached that level yet it wasn't the first time it was after a an association of Sohba, then you're not going to be able to benefit any further by coming to me. And he didn't let him come. He, I did not let him come. Allah Akbar So there are a lot of things when you, I mean, that's what I told you, their letters and their lives, it's a very good, it's like, and even if you do an academic, it's a very good sort of behind the scenes look at how this Sheikh-student relationship is when you look at these two, Sheikh-Rishidam and Gangoi Ramtanai and Sheikh-Rishavali Tan Ramtanai. Alright? Uh, and obviously beyond course, workshop, all of these things are sohbah. For women, it's confined to that, beyond course, workshop, online, beyond recording, beyond, there's no question of uh, being in front row or physical proximity, uh, physical company, traveling with sheikh, etc. Okay? Second aspect of sohbah, uh, uh, training, is ta'lim. Ta'lim means that you need the teachings. So there are teachings in our deen that if you read them, it will have one effect and if you're taught to them, it has a deeper effect and they're teachings. Teachings how to control your gaze, teachings how to control your anger, teachings on how to improve your concentration in salah, teachings about love for Allah Ta'ala, teachings about love for Nabi Kareem Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Being taught those things has a deeper effect than simply reading them on your own. Alright? So that is one aspect of the training. 
right? To be in a relationship where there's somebody who teaches you. So teaching in our method, teaching is bayan. Mostly, this is also one way. But there's something else right now. I mean, this wasn't a tazkiyah workshop. This was a more ilmi workshop, right? Uh, but could be, like the next workshop we have planned for you in April, inshallah, is actually, and, you, and when it comes, it's coming also, I'll mention it to you on the slide, inshallah, okay? To be taught, right? Because when you're taught something that being taught can, many times, not always, not necessarily, and no doubt I, I, don't con, I, I can completely confess, I don't think my teaching has that effect on everybody, but generally when I was taught, by my teachers, being taught by my teachers was more inspirational and motivational to me. In other words, it led me to amal. The asal is practice. Being taught it made me practice it. Sometimes reading it wouldn't make me practice it. That's the kind of person I was. If you're a person like that, this is a system for you. Alright? Okay? Next is so beyond Majlis, course, workshop, etc. Tarbiya. Tarbiya is slightly different than talim. In my own way that we do this, so talim is bayan and tarbiyah is majlis. <laughs> what I call majlis. Majlis is actually, like you can say, a more intensive type of training for those people who really want to be pushed. This is also, and maybe it would have been good to use that word because this is called islah also, uh, for somebody to be corrected, rectified, molded. Right? So one is that, okay, I want my practice to change. I need talim for that. Second is, I want myself to change. I need tarbiyah for that. Maybe that's the best way I can explain to you. I want my practice to change. I need some instructions on how to practice and some motivation and inspiration to practice that. And second is, I want myself to change. That is tarbiyah. I felt the sound change somehow. Tarbiya, alright? Okay? Now when a person comes to you with that intention, that's what I call majlis. And just in my own personal, again, I'm not launching new terminology. Me personally, when I feel that there's a bunch of people sitting in front of me, or I want to gather a bunch of people who are coming with that niya, that okay, we've already been, we've been learning, listening to Bayan, learning about the practices, now we want ourselves to change. So I also call it ragra. Ragra Isla Tarbiya. It's slightly different. Hard to explain. Alright? Next is Tazkiya. Tazkiya is uh, not, I mean, you know, related to these things. Uh, Tazkiya is basically, I mean, in English it means purification, right? Uh, and the reason I put it last is because it's the Asl. All of this sohba and talim and tarbiyah is to purify oneself of sins and to purify oneself of anything that is even slightly displeasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So that's the asl of all these things. Right? So maybe we would have structured it a little bit differently in the formatting. But sohba, talim and tarbiyah is done for the sake of tazkiyah. Right? In other words, for the sake of amal, practice also, and the sake of purification as well. Okay? Because one big aspect isn't just to do good amal, but is to leave the bad amal. To leave the bad amal. So that's basically what we're talking about when we talk about tazkiyah. And again, you need all three. Sometimes being in a good company helps you stay away from sin. Sometimes learning how our deen guides us to stay away from sin, helps us stay away from sin. And simply sometimes you might realize that a sin is so deeply ingrained in me 
that I'll never be able to leave it unless I change. <laughs> it's not just me changing my company or increasing my amal. Until I change, the sin won't leave me. Tarbiya. Alright? So this is another very important thing. Tazkiyah. Alright? Now after Tazkiyah, then, now, I mean, again, not it's not really all the same bullets, but another aspect of training is rather what I would rather put it this way, that there is something coincidental. Coincidental means that it occurs along and during the process of this training, during the sohba, talim, and tarbiyah, which was done for the sake of tazkiyah and for amal, for amal, that occurs along the way and that's called ta'luk. Right? Naturally, the longer you associate with any professor, you sort of get to know them. They sort of get to know you. Then a relationship develops. A relationship starts. Then it develops. Then it builds. This takes place over time. So this is another thing that I mentioned to you, that this also has to have balance. So the whole, the purpose of the shaykh is sohba, talim, and tarbiyah for the sake of tazkiyah and amal. The purpose of the shaykh isn't ta'luk, that I just want to be in a relationship with shaykh. Hmm? I'm talking about men, right? Because some men also, you know, they, you know, we call them, they look at us with the puppy dog eyes. That's all they want. They just want to be in this deep relationship with the shaykh, right? That's, that's, for them, that's what it's about, right? And then this has all types of negative consequences. So then they're all watching each other, who's closer to shaykh? Who did Sheikh pick to make his slides? Why didn't he pick me to make the slides? And all types of things start coming, all types of negative, what they call negative, whatever, externalities, all types of crazy things start coming up, right? Why did he go in his car? Why didn't he go in my car? Hmm? Oh, he remembered his name, he still doesn't yet know my name, right? The ta'luk is not the asun, right? Just remember, I'm separating. Islahi ta'lukim and islahi ta'lukim alag 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 Alright? Don't, that's what I'm saying. No, don't, if you, I mean, some of these, these words can be used in different ways. Alright? Focus on the concepts, just forget the tags. Okay? It's not about that. It's not about your personal friendship with the Shaykh. Yes, that may, that's a coincidental or incidental, non-essential, rare maksudi thing that can happen. And it may not happen. I'll tell you, alright, it might not happen, you know. I've benefited some of my teachers in Madrasa. I can't really say I had a personal taluk with them or they had a personal taluk with me. I still benefited from them. Right? Uh, and in fact, I just, I mean, I just two teachers just, just popped up into my mind. One who I did have a personal taluk with and the second who I didn't really have a personal taluk with. But in terms of ilm, I benefited equally from both of them. And that was the asal. That's why they were my ustad was I would learn ilm of deen from them. Alright? So this is coincidental, this is incidental, this does happen, it can happen, it may happen, it may not happen, it might sometimes happen, it may not always happen. Alright, okay. Now as long as you, the goal is, maksud is tazkiyah and a'mal. As long as you're making progress in that, right, that's the asl, alright. Now, still, I just wanted to open this up a little bit, because still the question would be, let's say the taluk happens. So what is it? Right? If it doesn't happen, then it doesn't happen. Right? But what are you talking about? Because a person might be wondering, what exactly are you talking about? Understand, what is this taluk that might happen? What If it happens, what is it? So there are aspects to that taluk, uh, beyond like what I said, that who makes the slides, and who, in whose car do you go, and whose house do you stay in. That's 
totally irrelevant. All right? There is something, and, to, to, and, and, and I will accept that that is beneficial to the goal of Tazkiyah and Amal. And that is that you can say there's a level of correspondence, a level of individual guidance, a certain aspect of individual counseling that can and may take place. Right? And the two structures of that, and this is one of the terms of Sheikh Ashraf Ali Tanvi is ittila and ittiba. Ittila means that you have someone who you can inform about any spiritual hiccups, any problems, any obstacles, seeking some individual guidance, counseling. But that ittila also will only have any benefit if you do ittiba, if you follow the nasiha that is given. So like when Nabiya Kareem Sallallahu Alaihi so the proof for this is Nabiya Kareem Sallallahu Alaihi Nasiha that all of deen consists entirely of good counsel and advice. Um, now for that to work, for Nasiha to be deen, there must be somebody giving the advice, there must be somebody hearing the advice, and there must be some following of that advice and some change and transformation in Tazkiyah and Amal due to that advice. Alright? So that is something that no doubt happens. So some people would call that islahi taluk. For example, uh, my teacher in Bukhari, I was also a sheikh, uh, Sheikh Sufi Sawar. He doesn't do this anymore because he's become quite elderly and old. But back when I used to study, he had this rule. That okay, look, if you want to be my student in Tasawwuf, you first have to write me 20 letters, 20. And you have to get 20 replies. And you might not always reply to every letter. So once there are 20 letters and 20 replies, then I will know that you are serious in your desire to change because 20 times you will have reached out and consulted and tried to learn. And 20 times I will have guided you and understood and then I will decide whether I feel there's munasaba, whether there's affinity compatibility and then I will decide whether to take you as a student. I mean, that's different. It's a different shiuk, have different ways of operating, right? You can different ways of admissions, different ways of enrollment, different ways of registration, different ways of education. Hmm? All right? So that's a certain thought look. Me personally, again, because I'm deliberately, uh, I'm actually very deliberately sharing these things personally with you on the record so that those who are our students can actually understand because I realize that sometimes... Uh, perhaps it, not perhaps it was a failure of ours maybe not to explicitly explain these things to our own students and therefore some of them ended up at their own understandings of these things right so I think that's also a duty of ours you know there's too many duties of ours right hmm. in the morning as much as I try to be Professor Kamal Dinamad ultimately I have to go back to being Sheikh Kamal Dinamad in the afternoon session all right so, uh, I, you know, and I'm still unsure about this. Because for me, per se, I have always had a lot of affinity with Imam Rabbani and Malana Ilyasamta's feeling about Dawah. And that's why for me, what I, what I used to do is that anybody who would ever come to me and said they want to be a student, I would think, okay, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent them and I have to take them because how can I say no to somebody? who wants to learn anything. So anybody who wants to enroll, we don't have anything, there's no fees, there's nothing. I mean, any it's open admissions, open enrollment. Academics and in Tasawwuf, Zikr, anything. Right? But then over time, I thought about this because I told you that I also do view 
to be, you know, very, very excellent examples of ideally how a person should be a sheikh. Now, Malanat much more, Malanat going less, had some hurdles you would have to pass before you could become their student. Let's put it that way. Alright? There were some criteria before you could become their student. Then I reflected, now, so this is a good way for you to why I always say historical, intellectual, spiritual, because you have to look at all things. Then I thought, okay, for every person, for every thinker, other than Nabi Akrim Sallallahu for everybody else, what they think is partly due to their context. So I tried to think that, okay, what Sheikh Rashid used to do, he wouldn't accept everybody as a student. If he was in this context, or if he was advising me in this context, would he advise me the same thing, Right? And I found several differences in the two contexts. The first thing is that, mashallah, in his time, there were many shiuch, right? So if you turn someone away, you tell them, go find a local sheikh, he can actually do that. Find a local sheikh who also has the same amount of manasbut with that local sheikh as he does with you. You can do that back then, because they were, well, subhanAllah, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of shiuch, right? That's not so much the case in this day and age. Second, the vast majority of people who used to go to him, with notable exceptions like Khwaja Aziz Hassan Mazub, Ramta, and others, but the vast majority of people who used to go to him were already very practiced, biased, Deobandi, you know, adherents, right? And many times the type of people who come to me are from, not all, again, with many exceptions, but a larger number of people who come to me are people who are, you know, not from uh, very religious families or backgrounds or maybe very English educated elite. And if I turn them away, I mean, where are they going to go? And I'll be scared that I turned them away. So I'm still working this out, right? Should I still keep the open admissions and let them, if they want to come, whatever I have to offer, I'm happy to do it. But what, I'm, what I have to offer is limited uh, because I'm overstretched and I'm overcommitted and I don't live in one place and I don't sit in one place. Uh, but if somebody still insists, that, you know, you know, so we try. Mostly it works, but every now and then the problem is and shaitan tries to play with somebody's head that okay, no, but you did join, but then now you're not benefiting, and Jazba and then now the Sheikh is not in Karachi, and now you're wandering, and you're left at the Nafsa Prishan. This happens less than 10% of the time, but it happens sometimes to people. Alright? So Allah Walam, you know, I think we'll actually, and I think I accept this, this is one of the elements of Nizul in our time, that uh, just, you know, just like you, you know, even the society is not perfect, the system is not perfect, Nothing is perfect. There's no perfection left anymore. There's no perfection in Tasawwuf. There's no perfection in Ilm. We are all imperfect people living in an imperfect time with imperfect relationships. The question is how to make the best out of it. How to make the best out of it. And for me, the easier position, and I still think is a true position, just to do tawakkal on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And I still feel if Allah ta'ala puts somebody in front of me, so Allah ta'ala put him there. You know, Allah ta'ala making him say this to me. So I say yes, you know. But Allah how it's going to work out practically, right? But then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the ultimate guide. And that I have seen with this online audience. And that's an amazing thing. And, you know, so I address all of them. We have people who are online students who have never ever maybe even been in the same country with me ever in their, in their life. And the way they write and the emails and the way they benefit, I'm amazed. And that's Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's not me. And it shows me that what I told you. Effort, humility, sincerity. And that doesn't come from the shaykh. That's entirely in the student. 
You can't even ride on the sheikh's effort or the sheikh's humility, the sheikh's sincerity. It's your own effort, entirely your own effort, your own humility and your own sincerity that will do it for you. And I've seen that in some of these online, not just a few. I can think even right on the top of my head a few dozen like that. And sometimes I'm amazed because, you know, sometimes, and I'm going to confess to them also, sometimes I get busy so I have to catch up on the emails altogether. Sometimes there'll be a person who I read two or three of their emails together, right? Because I couldn't read all of them as they came in, okay? Because it's a thread because I'm a Jimmy, all right? I'm amazed I read the first email. They're asking me, you know, let's take an example of a woman. They say, please make dua, I want to wear hijab. I haven't even read that, right? At that time, so I didn't make dua. Next email, Sheikh Ashar, hijab, make dua, I wear niqab. Third email, Alhamdulillah, I'm wearing niqab. Right? I'm reading all three emails together. Do you understand? It's not like, it's not my duas that make it happen. Well, she's writing because that's her sincerity. She do your duas. And second, do your duas, I started hijab. And third email, do your duas. I'm reading all this together right now. Allahu hmm? Akbar. Sajid. Right? And there may be women who have you know, heard hundreds of bands of mine in Karachi and they may never even uh, think of, of, of you know, adopting more haya. Right? So it, it's not always about uh, only the sohban, only the ta'luk. It's much, much, much more about, without negating these things either, but a lot of it is about a person's effort and a person's humility and a person's sincerity. All right? And in any case, the goal is amal and the goal is tazkiyah. So the last, very last thing to show you for today and then we open up to your questions on this topic. Almost on schedule. 4.15, we should try to stop. A few minutes, I will need. So if you go to next slide, number eight. So there's just three slides on this. I'm just going to give you and briefly comment on the practices themselves. So the first one is leaving sin. Now for this we have several bounds on this topic. You can go and listen to it on Islamic Spirituality website. Alright? But that is the ultimate amal and this is a constant amal and this is a lifelong amal. Because we keep sinning. It's very rare that it's very rare that a person reaches that level of taqwa that they actually say they stop sinning entirely. Then obviously then there is no concept of leaving sin because there's no sins to leave. It's very rare. And I would even go further, even if somebody reaches that, they won't know that about themselves. And if they ever think that about themselves, that's a bit dangerous. That itself is dangerous. Mm. That itself could be a sin, in fact. Or if, if not, it's definitely a door uh, that could very much open into sin. Okay? So this is an amal, this is the whole best. I'm again, I'm just going to give you headers. Each one is has a lot of instructions, talimat, tarbiyah, all of it about it. Okay? Second, and you can show the next three lines. Yeah. Second is ibadah. One greatest amal in our deen is still ibadah. Don't underestimate ibadah. Don't overestimate khidmat and akhlaq so much that you think they're substitute for ibadah. Don't overestimate good akhlaq that you think it can compensate for bad ibadah. No, these are very big misconceptions that people have. No, no, there's nothing like that in this world. Just like many times we've told you people before that you can be the greatest husband but that wouldn't compensate if you're a bad father. That says your kid will say, look, I know you treat Ma very well but you're terrible to me. And you, But you say, well, I'm a great husband. I say, this is irrelevant. It does not compensate for the fact that you're a terrible father. It's completely irrelevant. Right? So just like that, the most amazing akhlaq cannot compensate for poor ibadah. 
Alright? Okay? And that's not the meaning. This is again why you need to be taught formally hadith. That's not the meaning when Nabi Karim said hadith about the virtue of akhlaq and the virtue of khidmah. It wasn't negating. You have to also look at those hadith that talk about ibadah. They're all there. No one is negating or canceling the other. Right? You have to have that holistic, complete understanding. So the way to increase ibadah, number one is in the masjid and the home. So I'll repeat a few things I said for those of you who were there last Sunday in the night beyond. All right. For the man, you should try, number one, to increase your ibadah in the masjid also. Sometimes sit a little bit before salah. Sit a little bit after salah. In tidhar salah, there's a hadith that that also gives personal reward. And when you sit after salah, you linger in the after effects of salah. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's gaze of mercy falls on the person while they're praying salah. It doesn't stop when a person says salam. It stops when they get up, they do a'raz, when they move away from the place where they prayed salah. As long as you remain sitting in that place where you prayed salah, you are still in the shower of the radiant nur of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Even if you've said salam. It's only when you get up and move, which is called a'raz, then you exit from that shower of nur. So you should feel that. You should go before and linger after. This is what we do when we go to the doubt of a friend, right? We like to get there early and we hang out later, right? But just think like that. You have to have some feeling of that sometimes. Not every salah you have to go back to meeting, go back to class. I understand that. But there are many times we pray salah, there's absolutely nothing that we have to do afterwards. And we came from doing absolutely nothing. So a few of those, I'm not even going to touch all the nothings. few of those, not even all of those, try to linger. Then those who want to do more, sometimes try to sit from Fajr to Ashraq. Sometimes sit from Asr to Maghrib. Sometimes sit, you know, at some other time, whenever you get a chance. Okay? Second is that you should try to establish some, and, and for the women only the second one, and for the men also the second one, is try to establish some environment of ibadah in your home. Alright? Um, because that's very important. Because that's what your children will see. The children don't see the ibadah that you do in the masjid. The children don't see the beyonds you give in the workshop. The children see how you are at home, right? So you have to have some level of ibadah at home, okay? And for the women, to combine this, uh, there was a practice of earlier uh, women in the earlier Islamic communities that they used to designate part of their home as what they called masjid al-bayt. This is a formal term, actually, in the works of the fuqaha, which meant, and again, I've seen many South Africans have done amal on this as well, that they would actually have a corner or sometimes a room. And that would be their musalla, masjid al-bayt, is their ibadat khana in their home, right? And we have so many places in our houses, meiman khana and... What do they call that? Burtchi khana? Bawarchi khana, right? And mardana and whatever, right? So this is also a place. And this helps all, actually. This helps actually. Because we're not that strong. You have to also be honest. We are not that strong that we feel spiritual in our bedrooms and our living rooms. And that's a problem. What, what is wrong with the interior design of our living rooms or bedrooms? Or what is wrong with the amal of ghafla that we do in these bedrooms and living rooms that we don't feel the zikr of Allah Ta'ala there? It's a bit more than just the design. You understand? But okay, if you can't change all of that right now, at least have some room where you just say this is no ghafla zone. <laughs> Right? This is the room where no ghafla can take place in the house. All right? And you'll see, when you designate that place, you'll feel more closeness and connection to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So especially for the women, but also the men and children as a family. Next is group and individual ibadah. Individual ibadah is clear. There's always been a question 
amongst the jurists to about the extent to which group nafil is permissible. Right? And there have been a range of opinions of jurists on many different matters. Alright? Here again I would say etadal and etiat. Right? Don't do entire nafi of it. Right? Uh, but don't be exclusively reliant on it. Right? Some people they only do zikr when they do group zikr. No, but that's wrong. <laughs> you only do zikr when there's a group zikr. You should be doing individual zikr. And yes, occasionally you might join a group zikr. This is, I gave you some relative ratio for that. And I'd even go so further, you'll only really benefit from the group zikr, zikr if you're a person of individual zikr. And if you never make your own individual zikr, but you just randomly, arbitrarily, occasionally attend group zikr, it's not going to change you. It's not going to change your, remove you from sin, tazkiyah. It's not going to change your amal. It'll just be, it'll still be good, you will get reward, you will have stayed away from ghafla, you will get certain benefits from it. But it won't be able to take you all the way. But yes, if a person does individual zikr regularly, then yes, sometimes when they do group zikr, it can really give them a boost. Alright? Next is the nawafil adhkar. And here, so the question, for example, okay, well, what do I do? So if I sit from Fajr to Ishraq in the masjid, if I sit from Maghrib to Isha, well, what am I supposed to do in that time? So here's what we suggest to people that you should follow some guided regimen so that you do it systematically. An example we give people sometimes, if somebody makes intention to improve their physical health, they don't just randomly work out. They do a little bit of research or they go to some fitness trainer and they make a plan of action. They decide these exercises at these weights, at these reps, and they follow that plan of action systematically under some level of guidance and instruction. Because like I told you, for example, if you were to look at Imam al-Nawir, there's so many athkar out there. And then especially for those of us who are at that earlier stage, which we need elaj of ghafla and sin, then are there any extra secondary adhkar of the awliya that actually could directly cure my uh, illness of ghafla and sin so that I can you know, move on to the adhkar of qurb and wilaya? Right? Okay. So guided regimen. So this I already explained to you the two things. Remember I told you it would come later, Masnoon. Uh, so this will be the topic of the April workshop, inshallah. So I'm going to start with the du'as and Quran. And what I have in mind for that is to actually teach you the tafsir. And I don't know if we can do that in one day or two, but the niyat is to try to teach the tafsir of every du'a and Quran. So that you learn those du'as, that's your memorization, and you know the transition, but you really understand it, so you can feel the feelings of the du'a. And that requires tafsir, to feel the feelings. So that's one example of masnoon adhkar. Uh, and the secondary uh, adhkar, right? So the secondary adhkar. Now, actually I wouldn't have... Uh, I, I did put it, but I, I, would, I didn't mean to put it like this. Tazkiya kurban thawab. So what happens here is that the secondary adhkar, like I told you, are done as ilaj for tazkiyah, but the qurb and sawab of the masnoon athkar, the qurb sawab should be up there in masnoon, the qurb and sawab of the masnoon athkar is greater than the qurb and sawab you get through the secondary athkar. Alright? And it should also be clear that the masnoon athkar are not empty of tazkiyah. That's a general tonic. You get general tazkiyah to the masnoon athkar. Right? But sometimes there might be a particular... So let me give you an example. Right? So, and this is an example I often give. Is that there's somebody who goes to a sheikh 
and he says that, okay, I know that the Prophet has said in many hadith that you should remember death, remember death, remember death. And the person says, but I, I, I'm not able to do it. I can't think of death. Right? I can't think of death. So now Sheikh tells him, okay, that every night before you go to sleep, you imagine, they call this maraqa by mot, you imagine that you have died, and just, just for, a few, for a few minutes, just imagine the scene. That you've died, people are praying janaz over you, you're lying there, in, you're the mayat, then people are taking you up, they're putting you in the grave, then they're putting mitri on you, and now each and every one, one by one, is walking away, so you're all alone in your grave. And he comes back after doing that in a few days, and he says, Sheikh, <laughs> uh, can you undo this? Because <laughs> I can't work, and all I'm thinking about is death, all the time. He made the Torah about Right? Now you understand the Elaj part. It kicks a person. Right? Of this concept of Maraka by Moth, this not in the Sunnah. The Prophet never told any Sahaba that. Now the answer to this also, some Mashaikh and Ulama say, because the Sahaba didn't need to be told that. They had these things. Why? Because they had Sohbat Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. That's a unique method of tazkiyah that mean you don't have. They had sobat of Nabi Kareem, that was enough to blast them in shape. <laughs> hmm? And when they heard it live from him, remember death, that's the type of people they were. Right? So because we don't have access to that, obviously. Right? So sometimes we need a little jolt. So this is an example. Right? Okay? Uh, but, again, now, if you start doing that every night for the rest of your life for 40 years, there's no need for that, right? Uh, this was the tool. And once you got that remembrance of death, then you go back and do some Muslim Nathkar. Now, it's a good example. You got the idea? All right? Okay, next slide. Husul ilm This I already did for you yesterday in the morning session, that there should be some place where you begin and there should be some process of increasing and acqui- incre- acquiring and increasing your fahm Knowledge and understanding and ilm and knowledge of deen. Okay, and I gave a whole detailed explanation yesterday morning. Next is purification of the heart. This means two things to remove the bad attributes can be unlawful lust, envy, jealousy, pride, anger, laziness, negative opinions, doubts, skepticisms. There's a long list of them, right? And second is to adopt virtuous. Uh, I misspelled that, but virtuous attributes, there should be another you, all right? Which is the good feelings in the heart, compassion, softness, gentleness, love for Allah Ta'ala, love for Nabi Kareem Sallallahu In these two things, this is one area where the suhbah, the talimat, the is very effective, all right? Very beneficial to be trained in this, to get the training and the learning and the practice to do these things, okay? And the last slide uh, is now going to give you Another dimension of prayer. This is the last slide. A different dimension of prayer. Just one by one. One by one. So the slides before the, the first two slides and practice were basically all about you and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This last slide to show you that don't think amal is confined to that. There's another aspect of good amal. There's another aspect of amal as saleh is about you and others. Alright? When people love to talk about hukukullah and hukukullah, but it's not that term is misleading also. It's not just about the rights. Either you have to go beyond your rights. It's not that I will only do what 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 are people's rights on me. Just teach me that. But maybe maybe some of the things I'm telling you is to go beyond the rights that they have on you. All right. So the first thing is interpersonal relations. 
Okay, might be marriage, might be siblings, can be parents, can be children, so that's family relations, can be employees, employer, colleagues, fellow students, teachers, any, any human interaction. Now let me rephrase this, any human interaction that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has placed you in has certain adab, has certain usul, and could be used also as a means of pleasing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? So that's also a training. That's also a training, that's also learning, and then that's also a practice. Alright? Again, I'm going to briefly mention this thing next. Is professional and societal ethics. So how you earn, to earn virtuously, to earn lawfully, truly, virtuously, well, Allah mentions halal and tayyib. Tayyib. So that's basically what I'm calling ethics. Alright? Halal is a sharia matter. It's permissible, legal. And tayyib means it should be virtuous. It should be virtuous. In societal ethics, I've already spoken about several things in the morning about that, right? You have, should have basically compassion. And these are things I talked about last week also to use a compassion for the, I'll just give two, three areas for the Muslim, for the poor, and for the uneducated. Just to begin with this, just as examples, right? So this is a certain societal responsibility. It's not their haq. I mean, I mean, necessarily, Right? But it doesn't matter. You are a member of society and you have to become a person of khair, uh, of good in that society. And then that goes, that can, and I should add that word, and it's important here, but it's missing it to add the word ummah. Okay? So within your profession or your circuit, then broader speaking, the society, and then even broadly speaking, ummah, and even broadly speaking, even humanity. So you could add ummah and humanist ethics as another line over here. Okay, so just add that. Think the third thing is Uman humanist ethics, and then the fourth thing, Dawa. So I've explained this, and I and I have keep inserting this. This is a major thing, and I've told you also. This is also. I mean, I'm very much in this massage, right? Dawa, Dawa on your friends, on your colleagues, on your neighbors, on your families, on a random rickshaw driver, on the Uber driver. This is a new field of Dawa that I've jumped into. Uber drivers and cream drivers. Hmm? Yeah. <laughs> Hmm? Yeah. And they're very receptive. They're very receptive. You know. But I could also just been quiet or just talked on the phone the whole ride. But I'm like this person, you know, Allah has put me with this person for twenty, thirty minutes of my life. Probably I'll never meet him again until the day of judgment. But what if on the day of judgment Allah decides so maybe I can go to Jannah based on these thirty minutes with this guy? You know, it's quite possible. Alright? Dawa. Spirit of Dawa. Right? Feeling of da'wah. Right? And maybe, you know, another thing to add here would have been du'a. Because really da'wah, and I told this to you people last night, da'wah and du'a, da'wah and du'a, da'wah and du'a. Right? Uh, you have to do both. Try to do both and they, they really they go together. They're almost like lazim and mazum as we say. Alright? And the last thing is khidma. And again, this is something I've been talking a lot about in this visit generally. And also obviously based on what I told you people in the morning. There has to be some element of service. Now, no doubt if somebody has a right in their home an opportunity of khidmat, elderly, sick, needy parents, uh, you could get it right at home. And if you don't have it at home, search for it. Right? Uh, it can be orphans, can be widows, can be elderly, can be poor, can be illiterate, can be oppressed. There's a whole long list. And, and, and each one has millions in it. Those can, there are millions of all of the above. Millions. Refugees, homeless. Alright? Millions. 
So now you won't be able to do all of this instantly, but like I said, I just gave you the list. And, and some of you, especially the younger people, shouldn't make the mistake of trying to do everything. That's a common mistake that a person tries to do everything. And obviously you don't set a plan of action for yourself that is outside your reach. Reach for what's in your range. Allah Ta'ala will put what's out of your range in your reach. Reach for what's in your range. Allah Ta'ala will put what's out of your range in your reach. That's how it works. As opposed to reaching for what's outside of your range and falling flat and sitting and crying. Which is, I'm sorry to be blunt, what a lot of, especially men in their 20s, are stuck in this. Alright? To many so that's that's ragra what I just did right now so you wanted to know tarbiyah what I just did right now that's ragra islah tarbiyah okay alright so this is what I wanted to share with you about this and uh, very sorry I did go a bit over very few minutes but if you have some quickly questions you want to send or probably we should have handed it out a few minutes earlier but you ask something if you want to ask it inshallah and then we do because we like to and we always try to end with dua and we have to reach also in the masjid on time for asr. So basically, you can join me in the shortest question and answer session ever. Hmm? And like I told you, I'll sit from after asr to maghrib and I've already told one person I'll take him first and then after that, whoever shows up in line... You know, we'll take them from Asr to Makram, inshallah. Men are ready for du'a. It appears online is also ready for du'a. So, Make dua subhanahu wa ta'ala wa haba Allah wa masani ala sayyiduna Muhammad wa ala ala sayyiduna Muhammad wa barik wa sallam Rabbana adalamna anfusana wa illam takfir lana wa tarhamna lanakunanna man al-khasirin Rabbi gfir warham wa anta khairul rahimin Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Kareem, guide us on the path of amal You are the true murabbi, you are the true muzakki You are our one and only Rabb, our khaliq, our malik in Mikrim, we are your ibad. We came to learn how to submit to you, to become true to you, to become loyal to you, to become loving to you, to become beloved to you. Hidden Bikrim, we ask that you accept this niya, accept our sitting with each other, our associating with each other, only and only in your name and only for your sake, Yadim Bikrim. Make it a means of hidayah for us, make it a means of tazkiyah for us, make it a means of irshad and rushd for us, make it a means of amal salih for us, make it a means, Yadim Bikrim, for us to become people of dawah, people of khidmah, 
people of akhlaq, people of sifat. Ya Rabbi Kareem, grant us an understanding of sharia, grant us amal on sharia, grant us a home life of sharia, grant us a family life on sharia, grant us a professional life on sharia. Ya Rabbi Kareem, you know best all the problems and ills in our society and in our ummah. Help us, Ya Rabbi, guide us, Ya Rabbi, protect us from sin, rescue us from sin, accept our tawbah on this day from sin, Ya Rabbi Kareem. We make tawbah from each and every sin that we ever did. We make near that we want to leave our sins. Ya Rabbi Kareem, whatever changes we have to make, whatever changes we have to make in our company, in our habits, in our practice, in ourselves, Ya Rabbi Kareem, put every change in us. Just take out that sin, remove that sin, remove that flaw, remove that defect. Ya Allah Rabbi Kareem, make us people of khidmat of deen, dawat of deen, accepted for the khidmat of the poor, accepted of those who are near khidmat of those who are near to us, accepted for khidmat for those who are ghair and ajnabi and unknown to us. Ya Rabbi Kareem, grant us ikhlas, make us sincere, Ya Rabbi, grant us ajz, make us humble, Ya Rabbi, take out the laziness from our heart, take out the ghafla from our heart, make us hardworking on deen, make us mazboot on deen, grant us istikamat on deen, Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Kareem, let us learn from the Quran, learn from the seerah, learn from the sunnah, Ya Rabbi Kareem, guide us through all of those who you have guided, all of the siddiqeen, shuhada, salihin, ulama, awliya, sulaha, Ya Rabbi Kareem, guide us on any and every teaching that can lead us to you, protect us from every false understanding, forgive us for every false explanation, guide us away from every false ideology, open our eyes to the truth, open our heart to the truth, make us always on haq, Ya Rabbi, protect us from ever being on batil, being guided by batil, unwittingly, unknowingly serving the cause of batil, keep us always on haq, Ya Rabbi Kareem, Ya Rabbi, ask that you send your special rahmah on all of those who attended, all of those who are listening, wherever, whenever they may be, accept their niyat for coming, grant them their murad, Ya Rabbi, grant them their true maksud, and you are our maksud, Ya Rabbi, you are our murad, you are our mahbub, make us near to you, let us never be far from you, let us feel you in our salah, let us remember you in the day, Ya Rabbi Kareem, let us remember you in such a way that you were raised on the day of judgment in such a state that we are smiling upon you and you are smiling upon us, we are happy on that day and you are happy with us, that you announce and give elan of your raza, Ya Rabbi Kareem, Ya Rabbi Kareem, grant us that life, grant us that death, grant us that akhirah, Ya Rabbi Kareem, that is only on your raza. Ya Allah, accept all the du'as that are in the hearts of all of the people, grant their pious wishes, fulfill their sincere needs, remove our worries and difficulties, guide us, Ya Rabbi, help us, Ya Rabbi, inspire us, Ya Rabbi, Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Kareem. Rabbana takabal minna innaka antas sami'ul alim. Utubu alayna innaka antat tawabur rahim. وَصَلَّى اللَّهُ تَعَالَى عَلَى حَبِيبِهِ سَيْدْنَا مُحَمَّدْ وَعَلَى آلِهِ وَصَحْبِهِ أَجْمَعِينَ بِرَحْمَتِكَ يَا الْحَمَرَّاهِمِينَ آمِينَ